Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to a brand new, a special edition of Whatever We Want with J and K. I am your co-host, Kalila Elliott, and my normal co-host, Jamal, is actually out. He's doing a little early Christmas shopping um, so that I can have today's special guest all to myself and I can fangirl all over her. But before I introduce you, let me just give you all a little background story. Um, so as you know, Jamal and I attended Diller University together, but he went on, I went to NYU and Jamal went to SMU here in Dallas for grad school. And not, not only is SMU the alma mater for Jamal, but also Academy Award winner Kathy Bates, uh, the late great mega producer Aaron Spelling, Tony winner Deborah Monk, and Lauren Graham from Golden, uh, for, I was about to say Golden Girls, from Gilmore Girls and Parenthood, who has a special connection to our guest today, who is another SMU alum and one of the co-executive producers on the series Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist, which if you know me, you know that is one of my all-time favorite shows. I'm so excited to have her here on the show. She's not only a co-executive producer on the series, but also one of the writers and a consulting producer on the upcoming movie, Zoe's Extraordinary Christmas. Ladies and gentlemen, please help me welcome Samantha McIntyre. <laughs> oh my God, that was the nicest intro ever. Can you come to my house every morning and just do that when I wake up and I'll Listen, feel- you have brought me so much joy through Zoe's extraordinary playlist. It would be my pleasure to wake you up every morning. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us today, Samantha. I have to tell you, um, we were talking briefly before we started recording, but just for the audience's um benefit, I mentioned you and Jamal were actually classmates at SMU. And the way I came to find out about this is that he was, I think you did um um, a, a program at maybe Kitchen Dog Theater here. You were talking about your work with Zoe and he was at that event virtually, I believe. And after it, he was like, he texted me and said, you're going to kill me. And I was like, why? And he was like, because I'm on a virtual event with an old friend of mine who I forgot is one of the writers for Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist, which if you know me, you know what a huge fan I am of the show. And I immediately was like, you're dead to me. You're dead to me, Jamal, that you didn't share this information. So, so I'm super excited. I just want to give everybody that background story, but I want to talk because Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist is actually being made into a movie for us for the holidays. It's a, a yeah. Zoe's Extraordinary Christmas. It's coming out December 1st. Tell us about the show. Um, the movie. <laughs> well, it really, it really, uh, came from us being canceled. <laughs> uh, uh, we found out that, that we were not coming back for season three, or at least NBC was not bringing us back for season three. Ooh. And uh, <laughs> our showrunner and creator, Austin Winsberg, was, you know, hoping the show will continue. All of us hoping the show will continue. Right. They were shot Lionsgate shopping the show around. And um, I don't know whose original idea it was, but some, you know, somehow Roku... <laughs> was willing to let us make a Christmas movie. Thank you, Roku. Um, Which, by the way, you don't have to get anything to watch it. You don't need any devices. It's totally free. You don't even need to register. Oh, really? Yes, it's totally free. You can just go to the Roku, like, streaming site, and you can just stream the movie. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, so you don't need any. There's nothing to pay. There's no subscription. You don't Mm -hmm. need anything extra. Anyway. That was a side note because so many people were like, yay, we're excited. It's coming to Roku. And then they were like, oh no, I have to get another thing that I don't oh. have. Like you don't, you yeah. don't have 
anything. <laughs> but uh, we were excited because we left season two with kind of a huge cliffhanger. Yes. So doing the movie for us, even though there was part of us that wanted it to be a standalone Christmas movie, mm-hmm. or so we wanted to be able to to at least give the fans like closure to continue from the cliffhangers so people understand what is going on with Zoe and Matt, but also do it in a way that would leave the door open to more episodes if Roku, Hint Hint, or anyone else was like, this movie's great. Let's make a season three after all. You all can't, audience members, you can't see me, but my fingers are crossed. My my legs are crossed because I need this series to continue. It has been, I have to tell you, and I'm sure you probably hear this a lot, uh, just talking to different fans. Like for me personally, my father was going through a cancer battle, you know, um, at the time that the show started. So, so many of the themes and the experiences that his family was ha- having that, um, and he being Mitch in the show, and that Zoe was having, Peril, I have a similar relationship with my father they're very close to him. So seeing that, the, and also I'm a, I'm a theater nerd, right? Like a musical theater nerd. So seeing, you know, this really heartfelt, poignant story told in this very unique way, I think it resonates with a lot of people. Do you hear that from people a lot? Yes. I think, I mean, like you said, there's many areas where people might uh, relate to it. Some people, it is a musical theater. Some people, you know, it's this, but I feel like the strongest reaction is from fans who are going through loss or have dealt with loss and just, I mean, yes, that's the strongest. Those are the strongest responses I hear. If people reach out to me personally, it's like they went something through something similar, like with their father or with their mother and just losing a parent. And yeah, I mean, obvious. And even like, obviously having lived through like the pandemic and COVID it's like, just so many people relate to that aspect of the story. Um, and the fact that it's like based on, you know, it's based on the true story of our showrunner who lost his father to this actual disease. It was like, um, I think the emotion of that is really authentic and really, um, and people picked up on that. Absolutely. It comes through immediately. I think right out the gate from the pilot people, it feels very real. So I think I was reading something early on about, you know, one of uh, the showrunners experiences and it's like, it's, it's, you can see that it comes through very easily. It translates to screen um, very well. I do want to, before we get too much into the weeds on Zoe, I want to talk a little bit about you and your journey um, as a writer producer in Hollywood. Right. So, because aside from Zoe, you know, I've been checking out your, your credits. You are attached to so many hilarious, I'm going to call them uniquely weird projects that have so much heart and energy and just humor. And you do it in such a unique way. You cover these, you know, everything from aliens to people with psychic gifts and people who see unicorns. I uh, candidly, I watched I watched Unicorn Store just before we had this discussion. And I'm just like, I'm blown away at how you managed to tell these, you know, really human stories, but you break out of the box of how they're conventionally told and use like elements of fantasy and mysticism. I'm kind of curious to know, like, what's your secret wet, like sauce? Like, how do you how do you figure out to write in that way? Or is that just something that is that in your brain? Where does it come from? Um, what inspires you? Oh, I don't know. I think I, I, I like stuff that's, I think you said uniquely weird. Um, like that's my, maybe that's my <laughs> brand, but, um, you know, a lot of the shows that I've worked, none of the shows I've worked on, I created except for mm-hmm. a unicorn store that was written and created by me, but the, all the TV shows are, right. you know, I, those are jobs that I've gotten on people's shows, but right. I right. think that the, 
you know, the way that it works is you'll have like a writing, an original writing sample. And that's mm-hmm. what the showrunner is using to like sift through the people that are applying for their show. So I feel like my writing samples probably speak to like more off kilter weird yeah. stuff. So when the show runner is reading that sample, they're like, oh, maybe she would be a fit for the kind of thing that I'm doing. Um, but that is definitely the stuff. Um, before Zoe's, like I was strictly a half hour comedy writer and never worked on an hour long drama, though I guess it's more a dramedy, but I'd never done an hour long show before Zoe's. So my background is all half hour comedy and I'm really drawn to like character based humor and I love sci-fi. I just love like weird, quirky characters. And so those are the, that it's like not a coincidence. I think that that's, those are the jobs that I go after. Yeah. Yeah. And I, that is very clear. Like I said, looking at like your, just your, your list of credits. I, I was watching uh, because of course I've been studying up, studying up in preparation for this uh, conversation. And so I was watching bored to death and I, and I just remember thinking, watching this saying it's, it's an interesting thing to be able to talk about everyday things, but to be able to approach them and to bring in these elements that seem again I keep saying seem weird but in a very fun and interesting way right like I guess what I'm saying is they're not boring like you find a way to like infuse life into these everyday circumstances like somebody's uh girlfriend or boyfriend breaking up with them on the surface just seems like an everyday story right but to be able to add this element of hey I'm going to become a private detective as a result of my girlfriend breaking up with me is um, really interesting. So that in and of itself, I think is a, a, um, a testament to your talent in pulling out these unique circumstances in everyday life. Right. Um, I do want to ask you a question. I want to, because you mentioned a unicorn store, which you wrote, you, you created this amazing character, amazing talent too, right? You've got Brie Larson, you've got Samuel L. Jackson, all these amazing people, Bradley Whitford, Joanne Cusack. Like I'm watching it going, this is like a, a nerd's, uh, uh, you know, a movie nerd's uh, biggest dream, right? To have these amazing, talented people. So I want to hear about your experience writing uh, that film. Yeah, that uh, that movie took like 10, in, an independent film. It took me about 10 years to get it made. Oh, wow. Uh, meaning like for 10 years from when I wrote the first, you know, draft to us making it. But mm-hmm. a lot of that was like just through the years, you're you're trying to get financing for it. You're trying to find like director or actor to attach to it. Mm-hmm. And we like early and it had gone through different iterations. Like, um, you know, we had, uh, we had different actresses, we had different director attached to it at one point, but then mm-hmm. those things fall apart because someone will take another project and then they're not available now. And then right. that director leaves. So it was like, Nobody was ever available at the same time. And I kind of feel like it all worked out because the sort of first version of it ended up falling apart. And Brie, uh, Brie Larson had actually auditioned for it the first time we were going to do it with a different director. And I was crazy for her then. Like I, like I wanted her so much for that part. And we had, we had lunch and I remember her being like, oh, she is Kit. Like she's the character because she was just was kind of like, 
a weirdo, but like confident about being weird. And I was like, I'm a weirdo. Like we're both weird. Weird recognizes weird. (laughs) I remember I said to one of our producers, I was like, she is a delightful weirdo. And like, she is the character. And then, um, with that, anyway, she didn't get the part (laughs) in that version, but that all fell apart for various reasons. And then when it did, she was the first person that we wanted to go back to and say, because by that point, a few years have passed. And by that point she had directed uh, Mm. a couple short films and one that had like gone to Sundance. And so we thought, I wonder if she would be interested in directing this. Mm. And so we reached out again and we're like, Hey, do you remember this movie that you auditioned for a few years ago? Would you want to direct it now? And I think she said yes. Like the next day, like she absolutely had remembered it. And that, that set everything into motion. That was like, she was friends with Sam Jackson and sort of like, Oh, wow. Oh yeah. I didn't even think about the the Marvel connection. Cause I'm imagining they had already filmed Captain Marvel by that point. They hadn't. No. Oh, wow. Oh, oh. they had done. Um, what had they done? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I'm trying to like, remember the top order in my head, but she hadn't yet done Captain Marvel. Um, I think she found out about Captain Marvel like while we were doing it. Okay, but all right. I whatever she, I'm trying to remember whatever they were working on. He, she ha, she was working on the script like, you know, like in the makeup trailer or something, and he was like, "What is that?" And she was oh. like, I'm directing this thing," and he was like, "Where's kind of teasing like, where's my part?" Right, right, right. He like, would want to do this, and it was like, yeah, he would, and so. Yeah. It was like, yes, heck yes. So I mean, it's inspired casting too. (laughs) But I, every day I was like, my own mind was being blown that like first that she wanted to do it, that he wanted to do it. They, uh, Bradley Whitford was like a dream casting situation. Absolutely. My husband and I are like crazy West Wing fans. And my husband had worked on a TV show that, that Brad had worked on. And so we actually, he may have been one of the last people cast. Like we didn't know who the dad was going to be. And I think my husband was like, what about Bradley? Whitford? And he's so amazing. I um, mean, like I said, that whole cast is just it, there. Every moment that you see someone else new that you, you've seen on something, you're like, oh, oh yeah, they're great. They're great. And it's so interesting to see them in these, again, I keep using the word weird and meaning it as a compliment to say, seeing them in yeah. these weird dynamic scenarios. Um, what I also loved about uh, uh, Unicorn Store is that you managed to capture every artist's worst nightmare. <laughs> which is failing at your art and having to move back home with your parents. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I, one of my favorite lines from the movie uh, was that in response to um, another character asking her, what are your long-term goals? And uh, Brie Larson uh, in the role of Kit says, I would like to not be a great disappointment. <laughs> yes. I, I, yes, I relate to that. I never, well, you know, what's so funny. I guess I did move back in my, with my parents, but I think when, after I finished grad school at SMU, because my family lives in Dallas, I stayed in Dallas for about a year doing plays at Kitchen Dog before uh-huh. before I was gonna. My plan was to move to LA to be an actor. So I stayed and I stayed with my parents for that year. And maybe that's uh, maybe that's where that came from. I was gonna ask you what inspired the piece originally. <laughs> well, um, it definitely it wasn't autobiographical in any way related to my parents. They were very supportive. They like were like, "Yes, go to LA." Be an actor. <laughs> you want to do but obviously I think we all have a lot I don't know I personally have a lot of like self-doubt and can I do this and should I do this but I really this sounds so methodical but literally it was like I want to write a movie 
what are things I'm interested in, made a list of things I was interested in. And it Mm. it was kind of like a child's list, but it was like unicorns, (laughs) time machines, (laughs) portals, you know, like magic, (laughs) like like wizards, like there's just all this sort of stuff. And I uh, zeroed in on unicorn and what what, what would be an adult film that I could tell adult film. You're going into a whole nother genre now. We're just taking our ratings up, ladies and gentlemen. Not porn, guys. I mean, like, not for children, you know? So, uh, yeah, what would be, like, uh, a young adult story you could tell about? Get it out of my head now. You just reminded me of this joke from uh, an episode of Friends where Phoebe goes out with this really weird guy, and he talks about how he writes erotic novels for children, and she's like, wait, What? What? For some reason, that's what jumped out of my head as you were telling that story. Um, So you mentioned you, and of course you play a lot with elements of fantasy and mysticism and magic, which I, as a hoodoo hippie girl, love to hear and love to see. Um, I want to hear more about that. Like, are you interested in the metaphysical or is it just a device that you like have fun using? Um, that's interesting. <laughs> I never really thought about that. I like looking at my horoscope. Does that count? <laughs> I'm, not, but I'm not a very like mystical or spiritual person. No, uh-huh. I, I, um, I feel like in storytelling, I love like, um, absurd stuff or magical mm. realism mm-hmm. or just like, like cool ways that we can tell a story that are not necessarily real. Like right. what's a magical way to see things. I really yeah. like so when you were growing up as a kid, did you read a lot of like, um, I'm thinking Lord of the Rings and like um, uh, Secret Guard, like all of these, you know, movies or books, I should say, that rather had these like elements, had those types of elements in them? The number one thing that I read <laughs> gonna say Harry as, Potter? <laughs> as a kid, no, I'm about to reveal it because I'm actually wearing a shirt. So I'm going to, which our fans will not listening, but I was, a, I am and was a huge Star Trek fan. I just showed her my t-shirt and I used to read like in junior high and I would read all these like Star Trek novels Mm. very into sci-fi not like I wasn't reading Lord of the Rings stuff I didn't read until I was like an adult right Um, when I was a kid I was very into Star Trek that is so interesting you know I of course watched the show growing up but never read the the books did you were you into like comic books or anything like that no I was not. It, it, it's interesting. My husband grew up very into comic books and has now introduced them to my daughter. So my 11 year old and my husband are very like comic book knowledgeable and they know all sorts of things. I, I don't know very much about comics. Um, I was very, I guess it was just very specific <laughs> to Star Trek. Yeah. but so, so, so are you one of those diehard Star Trek fans who don't want to talk about Star Wars at all? You know, there's usually two camps. You're either in Star Wars camp or you're in the Star Trek camp. <laughs> no, I support uh, Star Wars and my family is super into Star Wars. I like, if you made me just blanket choose, like you must choose a franchise. <laughs> I'm going to choose Star Trek because I think it's funnier oh, like so to, like the humor of it I like that would that would make it win if uh-huh. we were just having like a blanket franchise versus franchise contest but I watch all the Star Wars you know content yeah, I love that's all interesting of it. I've never heard of anyone referring to Star Trek as humorous I've I've you're literally the first person I'm gonna have to go back and watch old episodes now because I've ne- honestly I mean I've always liked it but I've never thought of it as a humorous show so now I have to look at it with different a different set of eyes 
Well, you know, I'm kind of encompassing the entire franchise, like like the Chris Pine movie. Okay, true enough. Yeah, like, okay. They're, now I get it. Like, they're very like humorous. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. I feel like the original series, which is like obviously very campy. Campy, and, yeah. Like, yeah. Like, that's not like, I'm more like laughing at it than it's right. Right, okay, okay. Now um, I get that, yeah. Because it's a yeah. product of his generation, right? Like you look at any of the shows from the 60s, there's that element of camp to them, yes. whether intentional or unintentional for sure, yeah. Yes, but I think these reboot movies, like these J.J. Abram movies are like funny. And I that's love why I love Abrams. all, I love, <laughs> yes. And I love all the, like, to me, that's why I love all the Marvel stuff. Like, mm-hmm. it's because it's like, they incorporate humor and everything yeah. is not like so dry. Yeah. Yeah. I want to ask you um, about that a little bit. Um, one of the themes that I feel like that I picked up in a lot of the, the work that you've done is about starting over, or I would even say rather continuing on. Like um, we talked about Zoe. I Spoiler alert, if you haven't watched the show, but in season two of, of, of Zoe, when Mitch, you know, passes, we, one of, honestly, I watched the season finale of uh, episode, I'm sorry, I said season two, but season one, the finale, I've watched that performance of uh, uh, Miss American Pie so many times, I can't even tell you. And then in the opening of season two, when they sing, the family sings Carry On, I think that that's a common thread. So I want to ask you about that. It seems to be an intentional choice uh, on you all's part as the writers to kind of you, you, you talk about the challenges and the reality of what it's like to go through such a hard ex- emotional experience, but at the, but there's not this wringing of hands and hopelessness, right? Like you all kind of talk about what I like to say are like, what's the solution and a path forward? Um, is that intentional? What, what are you, what are you, how do you work to maintain a balance of hope when you're, you know, presenting characters who are in these awful circumstances, right? Emotional. Yeah, that is, I think that, is the question. I, I mean, and you know, so much of that is, uh, all of it is credit to the creator of the show, Austin Winsberg. Like it, he sort of created the tone mm-hmm. in the pilot, in the pilot, you see it in the pilot right away that like, this is going to be a comedy, but that will also make you cry. Absolutely. And so, um, that, that, finding that balance was always a challenge. Like it wasn't like, Oh, we figured it out. It was like every episode was how can we tackle the topics that we're uh, tackling, but still have humor. And like you say, it's so heavy season Mm -hmm. one, like watching her father, you know, deteriorate, knowing that he's going to die. I mean, I can't think of like a sadder premise for a show. And I think the only way that show works is if it gives you the other parts of life, like the hope and the laughter and the friendship and the family, like that it gives you everything. And I feel like people just relate to it so much because that is hopefully what we all are experiencing. Hopefully I, people are still finding ways to laugh, you know, going through like horrific things. And so, but it was, you know, we knew that season, when we started season two, it was like, this is going to be the season where she is trying to navigate, how do I, how do I carry on? How does my family carry on? But she still has work and she still has relationships, has all those things in her life. And so honestly, it was just episode by episode thinking through like, here's what's going on with her emotionally, but Mm -hmm. like, what are maybe some lighter fun things that we'll be able to cut to? And And that obviously the musical numbers help with that a lot because musical numbers just make you feel good. Even if it's like a gut wrenching <laughs> song, you're just like, Oh, 
Oh my goodness. I have to tell you the episode that focuses on, um, it's kind of a mystery. I actually think that might be the name of the episode um, where, or it might be glitch. I'm not sure which one it is. It might, maybe it's mystery, but where um, all, everybody's singing different heart songs, right? That they're not supposed to be singing. And Max yeah. ends up singing a song that is essentially um, Emily's song, right? About yeah. her dealing with postpartum depression. And it is heart wrenching. Like it is, I mean, I, it's yeah. hard for me to watch that episode. Like I love it, but that number in particular, both and Skylar Aston, Jane Levy, the entire cast, Alex No, I mean, sure. incredibly talented. Like honestly, when I look at your your regular cast, but you all have also been able to bring in like some mega stars. You brought in Bernadette Peters. You brought in Renee Elise Goldberry, who folks might probably know from Hamilton. I mean, uh, Justin Kirk, who I I I. I when Justin Kirk popped up as a terrible, terrible husband, I was like, wait a minute, we've got to find, this is my, this is my theater boyfriend. We need, we need to find a nicer role for him. But um, everybody is so amazingly talented. I wanted to ask you what it was like, you know, recruiting those folks, like casting people like Bernadette Peters. I'm, I can imagine that they're probably fans of the show, like so many other theater nerds. <laughs> I think it did get easier. Well, it got easier and harder because season two was all done during the pandemic, but um. So that made, of course, production more difficult, but two things that were helpful were that people had heard about the show and saw that season one was successful. So these, some of these like really great singers and Broadway stars, it was like easier to be like, do you want to be on the show? Because they knew what it was. Yeah. And also theater was shut down. So like. Right. We could ask like a Broadway person, like, would you want to come to Vancouver <laughs> for a week or two? Um, the pandemic was tough because of, you know, quarantine laws, like people coming into Vancouver had to, had to be willing to quarantine in a hotel for 14 days before shooting. So um, you weren't just asking someone, can you fly up here you and pop up for a week? <laughs> yeah. It was like, they had to really commit and be willing to come live in a hotel room for a couple wow. of weeks, shoot their stuff and then, you know, leave. So like we were, we are so lucky that, you know, the people we asked all said yes, but um, I think too, like a lot of actors really want to sing. Yes. <laughs> I mean, and I say that in a great way. Like I want to sing too, like in my car at all times. So if I think, you know, some, maybe that gives us a little edge when we're like, do you want to come sing a song on Victor on, um, it's always extraordinary playlist. Hopefully. Yeah. Like, yes. I've been dying to sing. So, yeah. I mean, I think also too, it's the appeal of the show, right? Like I, 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 the minute I watched it, I think I turned to who, you know, whoever was near me or texted someone like, this is an instant cult classic. Like it just is like, I, and, and I think that your fan base is like so invested in the show and I, and I'm counting myself deeply in that number. Um, why do you think people are so passionate about it? Um, I do think for, well, I can't speak for the world, but I know <laughs> that I like it, that, that, that it is something like light. I like that. It's a dramedy. I mean, to me, that is the tone that I like. I want, yeah. I want the emotions to be real. I want to be feeling real things, but mm -hmm. I also want to laugh and I want there to be like, I feel like it has, there's something hopeful about it. Honestly, so much of the network broadcast schedule, if you're looking at like the schedules for NBC, CBS, ABC, mm -hmm. Many of those are blocks of procedural Drama. shows. Yeah. You know? like, <laughs> yep. We got the law and order night, you know, we yeah. got all the, the fires and Let's get all the fires and all the, right. the all the doctors. <laughs> yeah, we have so much of that. So to me, it was like 
I guess it's so great that we got to do it for two years. I feel sad that it didn't get to keep going, but it was like, it was like, oh, we're something different on NBC or something yeah. different on, you know, any of the network broadcast channels where yeah. it's like, we're not solving a murder. Um, yeah. Um, I, I will say, I think as a fan, that's part, partly the frustrating part is that whenever you have a show like uh, Zoe, that is so unique and out of the box and just, I, you know, innovative, I don't think there's any, a better um, adjective to describe it, but it seems like shows like that face such an uphill battle to get, uh, you know what it is? I, I look back at like shows, I, I look at the history of a show like Cheers which in today's, you know, environment would have gotten canceled right out the gate. Like their yeah. numbers were terrible for the first couple of years. Right. Yeah. And so it, it, it feels like there's a lack, you know, that we're in this fast food type of environment in terms of, of shows, right. If a show doesn't, if it's not a huge hit right out the gate, then, you know, networks aren't willing to invest in them. And so I'm curious to know as a, you know, as a creative, how, I guess the question is how frustrating is that for you to know that there doesn't seem to be the time invested to really build an audience for shows anymore? Um, it's super frustrating and super depressing. And yeah. like writers, other te television writers, like we talk about this all the time. We talk because every, you know, a lot of people are on staff of shows like I was, but you're also developing your mm -hmm. own stuff at the same time. Cause you're right. like, you want to sell a pilot, you want to get your own show on the air. And right. so everyone is having these discussions constantly where there's, we all generally, genuinely <laughs> agree and know that something being super awesome does mm -hmm. not mean it will succeed. Like there right. is no correlation like between how amazing your script is and whether right. it gets there's so many factors that are beyond our control and some that we don't even know about, you know, yeah. that it could be, it could be that a network has decided like, oh, we need this all procedural night, or right. we just make sure that show is really creative and different and the fans love it. But we, we know that we just make more money on a cop show or, yeah. so, and then there's all these different metrics for like, what is success on a streaming you know, platform right. success in cable, what is success on broadcast? And they're right. all different and they're all changing all the time. Right. Constantly. I, you, I feel like you can't really chase the formula because you don't know what the formula is going to be. So my theory, you know, it's not my theory, but my takeaway from all of that is you truly can only write what you like what speaks to you and just hope like someone will want to buy this or someone will want to make this because I can't like guess like, Ooh, I should write like a cop show for NBC next year. And then they change, you know? Yeah. And, and you can't be all things to all people either. That's, yeah. that's yeah. And I do think that that's the curse of, you know, television shows being becoming popular is that it's this assumption that oh if it works then we always have to keep doing this and to your point it's like yeah. we don't want to see the same thing like it's great that there are cop procedural shows and other procedural shows but it's like let's you know expand our palette a little bit and, and think outside the box you know um I do want to uh switch gears a little bit we were talking about the talent yeah. on the show and uh one of the breakout stars from the show is of course Alex Newell everybody loves him he's amazing yes. um I also love the fact and 
I actually saw him um, the first time I saw him, he was on Broadway doing uh, Once on This Island. And I was blown away. I remember thinking, who is that? That, that person is amazing. And then to see him um, on the show playing Mo, who is a non-binary uh, gender fluid character. I want to talk about that. There have been so many advancements, I think, in the last couple of years when it comes to seeing underrepresented groups, whether we're talking about people of color, transgender people, and those who might identify as non-binary or gender fluid. I want to ask you about how, you know, you write authentically for characters. I mean, you're a white woman, grew up in Texas, right? I want to ask you about like writing for characters who are, you know, generally described as outside of mainstream, right? Like, what is that like? And how do you ensure that you're doing it in a way that's authentic? Well, that's a great question. And honestly, that's the number one reason why writers rooms need Mm -hmm. to be diverse and inclusive Mm -hmm. because I am not the person (laughs) to be (laughs) speaking about, um, Alex's experiences. And so, and, um, so, you know, we have, uh, writers of color in the room and we have, uh, LGBTQ writers. And so, and also as much as we can, we try to check in with Alex himself. Mm-hmm. asking mm-hmm. him, you know, what pronouns do you want us to use on the show? Right. Do you want us to refer, do you, would you, do you want us to say you're gender fluid on the show? Like, how are you feeling? And so trying to check in with the actors as much mm-hmm. as possible, feeling like they were, so to know if they were feeling heard, sometimes right. they, they were not feeling heard. So right. it's just like checking in on them. Um, I do feel like I don't know if you noticed this shift, but we tried to, we tried to be a little more aware in season two versus season one. And this was a thing where in season one, we had a mindset and I, I don't know if this was the right mindset, but this was the mindset of the writer's room in season one was that we're not going to talk about a lot of this stuff. Absolutely. It's like, it's like I did notice the shift. <laughs> like Zoe, It's like, Zoe is interested in Simon and in season one, we're not mentioning that he's yeah, a black, him being black is Him being black is superfluous, right? It, it's, it's, right? it's a non-factor until it becomes a factor, right? In right. His own and experiences. Think, yeah. Yes. And I think at the time, and I don't think this was the right decision, but I think at the time we felt like, oh, we're trying to make it not an issue. Like she doesn't mm-hmm. tell her. So they're not talking about it. Yeah. And, and honestly, at the beginning of the writer's room for season two, um, a big change was we, we did have black writers in the room in mm-hmm. season two. And also we were starting that room, uh, in the summer of 2020. Absolutely. And that yep. was George Floyd, yep. black lives matter protests were happening. And that was when we had discussions in the writer's room about, um, you about writers saying, you know what, we didn't talk about this stuff in season one, but I guarantee it's, Simon is thinking about it all a thousand times Simon is feeling it. And even yes. though maybe like there were so many discussions about can spark point be racist. <laughs> it's like, there are like hero company. And it was like, we had writers in our room saying you guys, even if spark point is not explicitly racist, I guarantee you that Simon is experiencing microaggressions. Absolutely. That he is like, he's, you, we may not be showing it or talking about it, but like he's a hundred percent as a black man is like live having these experiences and wouldn't it be cool if we did talk about it on the show. Yeah. And there were a lot of like uncomfortable 
but amazing discussions in the writer's room because some of this is like, like I said, I'm not the person <laughs> to be commenting or writing about that, but like, I want, we, we all really, I think everyone's heart was in the right place and we wanted to be allies and we wanted to help tell the story. And the writer of that episode, Zora, who wrote the um, sort of uh, episode where Simon brings all of this up with Zoe. I mean, he did like an incredible job and so much of that episode was from his experiences mm. and, um, and talking to the actors too, like talking to how they felt and just yeah. trying to put as much of that in the show and keep it a comedy. <laughs> I tell you, you all did an amazing job. And I, I, I definitely did sense the, the shift. I, what I appreciated about the way in which you all, I guess, dealt with race and, and whether we're talking about gender identity, all of those different others, the other, the ways in which we are othered, right. Um, in season one, that it, you weren't being hit over the head. And, and, and to some extent there can, it can be refreshing to watch a show where it's not hyper-focused on your race, right. Where it's not hyper-focused on your identity, where it's just kind of like, this just happens to be my reality, but that's not all that there is. Like there are universal experiences, right? But I think what is super important that that, that you all acknowledged going into season two is that, but our experiences inform our life, right? Like our, our background, our identity, those things experience our every, how we go through the world. And so to your point in, you know, facing everything that we all face in the summer of 2020, a black man working in a tech company being asked to to make a statement like that's that's that is it was a very that storyline felt very real. I also appreciated being able to hear from uh, like the, I think there's a moment in one of the shows where um, Simon is talking to Mo and then he talks to I can't remember the the character, his other love, a potential love interest comes into play. And just even that exchange yeah. of having that very honest. Yes. Having that very honest exchange among one another, because that is true of as how as to how it happens. Like you can be very good friends with someone who is not a member of your quote unquote community. But sometimes in order to to process what you're feeling, you got to check in with people who look and feel like you. Right. So um, I think you all did a great job with that. I do want to ask you, um, you're a comedy writer <laughs> and we're in this age of what people like to call cancel culture. I am curious to know your thoughts about cancel culture and how you balance telling stories that are funny but that without being offensive, right? Because you all do a great job at that, I think, um, specifically on Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist. And honestly, I, I just finished rewatching Married. I'm just like, there are a lot of things that I think now probably couldn't be said now that were said then, but I'm curious to know your, your thoughts about that. Um, oh, man. Well, <laughs> I think I, I, can't, I kind of can't stand it when, um, like, if like, when stand-up comedians get called out for like uh, saying stuff they shouldn't say, and they're like, "Oh, we can't. We're not allowed to be funny anymore." Right. I'm like, "No, it's your responsibility to change with the time." So, yeah, right. like, like to me, the joke is not more important than you know not offending people. So, um, I feel like there's. I feel like if you can't find a way to be funny that in that situation, then you aren't creative enough. <laughs> a woman after my um, own heart. <laughs> yeah. So like, you know, the world, I want, I hope in my heart that the world is slowly improving yeah. over time. And I feel like we have to adjust our comedy and you're right. Like there's things in like shows from five years ago that like, uh, I was in the writer's room and that was being pitched. Now I'd be like, no, we can't do that. 
Oh and I, gosh. I mean, the yeah. married episode where he has to fire his friend with the with the curly wig, the gray haired wig. I was like, that would never fly. I mean, I get the point. It's absurdity, right? But it's hilarious. I'm like, I don't know. It would get past the um, the censors these days. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I want to talk a little bit more about Zoe, of course, because that's why you're here. Um, so sure. before we before we start talking about the Christmas um, movie, I want to ask you, what's been your favorite episode or storyline from Zoe uh, or in, in your favorite musical number in the show? Ooh. <laughs> Ooh, this is so hard. I know. Well, one thing is I feel like so <laughs> for season one and season two, I wrote for each one. I wrote what we we refer to in the room as like the glitch episode, which is the one. That's like very different in season one. It's always extraordinary glitch. Mm-hmm. And then in season two, it's, uh, uh, it's the mystery, which yes, the mystery one. Um, yes. So, and those are ones where Zoe gets to sing. Right. Mm-hmm. But, um, the season, probably season one glitch is my very favorite one. I mean, I wrote, I wrote that episode. It was the concept was, uh, our showrunner Austin was his idea. He came into the season like he sold the show, it's getting made. He came into the season saying, what if there's like this weird glitch in her powers where yeah. she's the one singing? And yeah. we all were literally like, wait, how's that going to happen? Like we, like that was the idea he came in with and we didn't know. And when we started talking about it, uh, they usually assign episodes to the writers. And so mm-hmm. when he said, you know, Samantha, do you want the glitch episode? I was like, oh my God, yes, because that is like, that's the stuff I like, right? That's like, the yeah. weird, like, what's the weird version of our show? And that was sort of the most weird episode and her singing. Um, I saw mommy kissing Santa Claus. Oh my gosh. <laughs> one of my very favorite things. I ask you. Yeah. Is that like, are you all referring and we're going to get, we're going to get a reprise of that in the, of the holiday special. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so, but I think it is so funny that we didn't realize that we were having a little Christmassy. <laughs> Yeah, because in that episode, there's like a Christmas glitch with the phone. Yeah. That was a whole manufactured thing so that we could be able to explain sh- why she could explain that she was singing mm. song out loud. It was right. like, oh, it's a good reason to like get herself out of this. Um, so I would say San, the I Saw Mommy Kissing Santa Claus would be my favorite like funny number. But if my favorite like maybe like gut-wrenching number was one you've already mentioned, which was Skylar singing Anyone. Oh. Um, oh gosh, which was gut wrenching. And he, by the way, sang that, uh, like live, like on stage, like it was because we pre record a lot of the songs and they're, Mm -hmm. um, but this song, he was like singing it. And I don't know if you remember, but like he's when he snaps out of the song and he's like suddenly like cheerful. Uh, that was incredible. Like watching the dailies of him do that moment over and over, he'd be singing like his guts out, like he's devastated. And then he is like, and then he would snap out of the song and just be like, Hey, what's going on? And you would be like, how are you doing? How are you going? Like, I think that he's incredible. Yeah, he's a phenomenal talent. It's so funny that you said that Glitch was your favorite. That's Glitch and Mystery are my two favorite episodes. And I think it's for exactly the same reasons as yours. It's, I love the, I I look at it as the remix, right? Like these are the remix uh, episodes of the show. And I also like, specifically, I liked Glitch because of the Christmas references, because I love Christmas. Um, And I like the fact that that's the episode where both Max and Simon get um, a glimpse into like Zoe's actual feelings for them. So that for me, I I would definitely, yeah. Yeah, we would uh, we would refer to that uh, that episode was pure love triangle city. 
Yes. <laughs> Whenever we would do like a heavy love triangle episode, we would say one of our writers, Lindsay, came up with that phrase. She'd be like, oh, my God, we're in love triangle city. And I was like, it's full love triangle city, um, which also was a huge challenge of the show, which is like how how much can you frustrate the audience? Right. Which because yeah. you don't want people to be mad at you, but you also want the conflict and the fun of a lot of love. Absolutely. Story. And it was like, how long can we keep it going? And we felt like. I think we you like, struck the right balance though, because I was involved by the end of season two is <laughs> what. Was like, if we don't get Max, if we don't get a Max and, and uh, a kiss from, from Max and Zoe, I'm going to lose my mind. So the, the, you know, again, spoiler alert, um, uh, the season finale of uh, season two was just like, oh, I mean, that would probably be in my top three because. It was no, you were team, moment. you were team Max. You were team Max. I was team Max pretty much from now. I did have those moments where I was like, well, Simon is really nice. But I think from, I have a, a you know, a sweet spot for like, you know, guys who've been, pine, people who've been pining away for their love, you know, the one they love for forever, this unrequited yeah. love. So seeing that, and also, especially when you all did the the episode where there's like, we get to see how they became friends and like pretty much from jump, they were both like smitten with each other. And so it's like to see that, like, I was definitely rooting for them for sure. Um, I want to ask you, I know we only have a few more minutes with you, but I want to ask you, are there stories that you wanted to tell that you haven't had a chance to tell that you would still like to tell for Zoe? Um, definitely. I mean, we, and I think we'll get, you'll get a hint of this or a taste of it, I guess, in the the Christmas movie, but you know, when you see the season finale of season two and you are like, oh, wow, Max has the power now, Right. right. That was supposed to be a jumping off point for all of season three was going to be now the two of them are together, right? The love triangle is pretty much over. And like, what is it like to have a whole season of these two people in a relationship where they can hear each other's thoughts. Basically. My goodness. <laughs> where both of them can, you know, because yeah. I feel like we've seen, I don't know, there was like a movie where someone could hear other people's thoughts before, but like, we were like, Oh, with these two characters who we love and we've gotten to know and like the fun of Max getting to realize how hard that must've been. For Absolutely. Her. And yeah. that was a big part of like their relationship troubles right that she would always have this insight that he didn't have right now he has sort of the same gift but the same curse and what would that do so I feel like it was going to be a very like uh there was a lot of fun romantic comedy stuff to be had Mm -hmm. with the two of them and then um we really wanted to do so much more with Simon in season three too, as far as because he was during the incubator um, program. That that was supposed to be like, you know, the start of a big storyline that would happen to him in season three. And I think we touch on it a little in the movie, but one of the bummers about the movie is just, we could not include we couldn't wrap up everything like we would want to wrap up for so many characters. It's like, it's a huge ensemble cast and obviously Zoe and her father and Zoe and Max are a big focus of the movie. And I, um, everybody's in there a little bit, but I was going to ask you, are we going to get an appearance from um, Mitch? It sounds like we might. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. And what about our favorite prep bros and and our dynamic coders? Are they all coming back? Yes. (laughs) You will get to see everybody. and in some ways people, you know, if people have favorites and they're sad, that person isn't in it more. It's like, oh, well, we're, we are too, <laughs> but we try to like, 
we tried to wrap it in case there's never any more. We wanted to like wrap it up as much as we could. Right, right, right. But, um, wonderful. Oh, that's so awesome. Um, I do have one request and you can tell me if you can't tell me, but please tell me that we're going to get, um, a cover. We're going to hear Alex Newell cover Mariah Carey's all I want for Christmas is you. Please tell me that's going to (laughs) happen. Oh, oh my God. I want to, we got to text. I'm going to text you on December 1st. Okay. 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 Yeah. Oh goodness. Okay. Yeah, well, but- I, I do want to ask you, okay, before we, we wrap up with you, I want to ask you, I, this is a total ripoff of James, Lip- James Lipton's famous actor studio, random mm-hmm. questions, right? Okay. Um, so I'm going to ask you four or five random questions and you just tell me what comes up to the top of your brain. Okay. Um, so on our show, our show is about whatever we want. So what's a topic, a theme or a story you haven't explored yet in your writing that if someone said, you could do whatever you want what's the story you would tell uh, um i would do a mother daughter space adventure <laughs> would you do it with your daughter your actual daughter um yeah <laughs> she'll have me that's so cool that's so cool okay favorite holiday thanksgiving or christmas Christmas. Yay. Uh, what is a piece of art, whether it's music, film, theater, literature, et cetera, that you take with you on your own private deserted island? Oh, gosh. Okay. Well, it has to be a book. <laughs> um, uh, this is hard. <laughs> I just, and I just got through watching the episode where, Joe, where uh, Zoe sings Pressure. <laughs> I feel like I need to sing it for you now. Pressure. <laughs> I feel like this is complicated because I probably, I'm not going to say that like Harry Potter, I love Harry Potter. And part of me is like, I should choose one of those because they're really long. They are so long. So I'm like, yeah. do I, take, maybe I take like. Uh, I mean, the How Blood Prince is pretty. I mean, just that reveal alone is like. <laughs> yeah. Maybe I have to take the longest Harry Potter one if I'm going to be yeah. on an island. <laughs> Okay. What's a secret skill that most people don't know you have? And by the way, I know a secret skill that you have. I'll mm-hmm. wait, let's, I'll see if you name it. <laughs> secret skill. Um, <gasps> you didn't tell me these are going to be so hard. Um, you uh, want me to tell you what a little birdie I, told me? You, a skill you have is? <laughs> wait, what? Yeah. What is it? A little birdie told me that you are really great with quarterstaff ninja stars. Oh, <laughs> Well, that's so funny. Jamal must have told you that. So in grad school, I did a lot of stage combat stuff and I had, we had an amazing, we both had an amazing stage combat professor, Bill Langfelder, who taught us all kinds of really cool stuff and taught me how to use a three-sectional staff and quarter staff and all kinds of like really bad. So you write, you act, you produce, you're such a (laughs) badass. Look at you throwing quarter ninja stars. It's around. Okay. Um, before we wrap up, of course, I have to do homage to, uh, James Lipton and ask you, what's your favorite curse word? (laughs) Oh, fuck. (laughs) fuck. I was going to say anybody who watches the show should know that. I mean, we start off every episode with finding a way to work in the word fuck. <laughs> like, isn't that every episode? Not always, I mean, there's, uh, her mouth is always covered, but it's funny in the script, like in the writer's room, we would always discuss like what, what's going to be the phrase that gets covered up. But a lot of times that isn't the word that's, it isn't oh. unnecessarily. Sometimes it's like, yeah, I, I thought oh, once that was like bullshit or something like that. Yeah, sometimes it's like, she's saying, oh shit. Or yeah. Uh, yeah, but that was a, that was a fun thing to like figure out how we could do that 
every time, every That's week. So cool, and like, man. and fun that they let us do it. Cause we, we kind of wondered like, is NBC going to be cool? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's so great. Well, I want to thank you, Samantha, for coming on today and just, you know, spending time with us to talk about the show. I want to remind our audience that Zoe's Extraordinary Christmas premieres December 1st on the Roku channel. As Samantha already mentioned, you don't actually have to buy a Roku, but you should go to the streaming platform to check it out. Uh, Seasons one and two are already streaming on the Roku channel as well as on Peacock, I believe. So go do this is what I'm about to spend my week doing is I'm going to do a marathon binge watching all over again, get my heart broken, have all the wonderful experiences uh, re-watching the show before the um, premiere of Zoe's Extraordinary Christmas on December 1st. And so I want to say thank you, Samantha, for coming on and joining us today. It has been amazing having you on as a guest. You could come back anytime and hopefully we'll have you on to talk about when the show gets picked up again, because I'm believing that's my Christmas Ooh. wish. <laughs> Um, how do I, I need, I need your personal review after the movie. So oh, absolutely. I will be sure to text you immediately afterwards. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Thank you again, Samantha. We appreciate you so much for coming on. And ladies and gentlemen, again, if you have not marked your calendars, December 1st is when Zoe's Extraordinary Christmas premieres on the Roku channel. Thank you again so much to Samantha McIntyre for joining us. I am just full and excited and I cannot wait until December 1st to watch Zoe's Extraordinary Christmas. In the meantime, it is now time for our For the Culture. For the Culture! For the Culture. For the Culture. For the Culture. For the Culture. This week's For the Culture is Rebecca Hall's feature film uh, directorial debut, Passing. Passing is based on Nella Larson's 1929 novel of the same name, and it focuses on two Black women, uh, one of which is passing for white and another woman who has chosen not necessarily to pass for white, but to um, live her life as a Black woman. And so it talks about the dynamic between those two women and the um, people that they encounter uh, during their lives. So the film Passing stars Tessa Thompson and Ruth Nega and is now playing on Netflix. So be sure to check out uh, Passing on Netflix. Thanks again to our special guest, Samantha McIntyre, for joining us for today's episode of Whatever We Want with J&K. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast via Apple, Google Podcasts, Pandora, Spotify, and any other podcast platforms that exist out there. And be sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Chief Disruptor Productions or at Whatever We Want, J&K on Instagram. Thanks so much for tuning in, folks. Peace out, y'all. Bye. Whatever We Want with J&K is produced by Chief Disruptor Productions with help from audio editor Larry Wells. Get updates whenever we post new content when you subscribe to the show on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, Spotify, Pandora, and most podcast streaming platforms. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Whatever We Want with J&K and also on Facebook and Instagram at Chief Disruptor Productions. See y'all next week. Peace.